Good morning. My name is Alan Lee. No, let me start over that for the young people. My name is Lee. Alan Lee. I have been commissioned by the King of Kings to proclaim the Word of God. And I was given not a Magnum 357, but I was given an inspired 6640, 66 books written by 40 authors that contain the power of God himself. And it was given so that we might destroy the forts, the fortitudes, the garrisons of false philosophies of people who proclaim evil and false doctrine. We've been given the license to do that by the Spirit of God himself. So, I reintroduce myself to you. I'm Lee, Alan Lee, licensed to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now we are going to be looking at a tremendous epistle today, one of Paul's epistles, written to the church at Colossae. I prayed much about what I would be speaking now because as I mentioned in the bulletin, this will probably be the beginning of the end of a series of messages here at Calvary Bible Church as your senior pastor. And so I was praying a lot concerning what we should be looking at. And the book of Colossians came immediately to mind because it focuses on the major themes that we have been trying to focus upon during our ministry during the past 21 years. For instance, when you get to the first chapter of Colossians, you'll see the focus on the importance, the priority of the Word of God. And then, just in, in the last part of chapter 1, you'll see the supremacy of Christ, the fact that He is sovereign over all, and that we need to be subject to Him, and we need to know who He is. And then as we go through the book, you'll see He's emphasizing our need to use the Word of God to combat error and false teaching that will be prevalent in the days in which we live. And as you end in the book, you will see that Paul is emphasizing the importance of maturity, of growing in Christ. In fact, in chapter 1, as we're going to be focusing on, he focuses on the essential need for intimacy with Jesus Christ. If we as Christians are real disciples of Christ, then we will always be striving for intimacy with Jesus Christ. And he will show us in this passage how that intimacy can be achieved. Of course, I believe it is true for us to say that we all desire and search for genuine intimacy with God. This, I believe, is the final mark of a truly mature believer in Christ. The Apostle Paul explains exactly how this intimacy can be realized in this amazing epistle to the Colossians. So I invite you to turn to it with me this morning. I want you to see how he begins, and we'll be looking at it word for word, phrase by phrase. I have a problem with what we call topical preaching. I look at topical preaching as playing, uh, what do you call that game with gun? You hold a gun to your head, Russian roulette, and maybe the gun will shoot and maybe it will not. That's why I look at sometimes when we call topical preaching. Sometimes it will hit, sometimes it won't. However, when you go to the Word of God and you go 
phrase by phrase, verse by verse, word by word, it will never miss because it is the power of God. All the words. Notice how he begins. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and priests from God our Father. Now we often run very quickly over this greeting because it's so familiar with the Apostle Paul. But if you really do a study of Paul's greetings, you'll see that they all vary in different ways from epistle to epistle. And he does it purposely. He leaves out some things, depending on who he writes to. He puts in some things, depending on who he writes to. And many times he puts in words or phrases or concepts that gives you an idea of what he will be talking about throughout the book. So many things you can look at. For instance, he tells us that believers in Christ have two addresses. One on earth and one in glory. Notice, brethren in Christ who we are at Colossae. So these Christians were in Christ. That's their heavenly position. They were at Colossae. That was their temporal or physical location. They were born into the first, but born again into the second. And you've not been, if you've not yet been born again, you only have one address. And that is whatever the place you are living right now on earth. You should be striving to have two addresses. One on earth and one in heaven. And that specifically is being in Christ. But secondly, this greeting also tells us that the source of grace and peace is God the Father. Whom Paul further defines in the next phrase as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are precious words. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice carefully then. God's grace is the basis for our peace with him. And it's impossible to experience his peace. Apart from first experiencing his grace. His grace that provides us with his free and perfect salvation. It causes us to have peace with God. It's his grace. God the Father's grace that allows us to be placed or located in Jesus Christ. It's only by grace, not by works, nothing else, by faith. Third, this greeting also makes it clear that our God is the true God. He is a new God. And to bring it current today, it tells us that our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the not the same as Allah, the God of Islam. That's not the same God. Why? Because they do not believe in God the Father. They do not believe that God can have a son. In fact, they think it's immoral for that even to be stated about God. They believe that to believe such a position that God is a father and that he has a son is blasphemous and immoral. This means then that they do not believe that Jesus is God. Or that he is their savior. So this tells us right away that the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a unique God. He is a true and living God. But then Paul then states that he gives thanks to God for these believers when he prays for them. Notice what the text says. We give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on then to tell us, when he prays for them, he says, always praying for you. Now, some translations have it to mean that I pray, when I pray for you, 
I always give thanks for you. Not that he is always praying for them. But he says, whenever I pray for you, I always give thanks God for you. Isn't that great to think that someone like the Apostle Paul, whenever he prays for a believer, would thank God for them? What do other Christians think of you when they pray for you? Can they thank God for for you? Now, Paul is going to tell us why he thanks God for them as we go through this passage. But I think it's important for us to look at these little signs here of how we are to live the Christian life. I believe we are to be looking for things in another person's life for which we can thank God. In fact, I was writing out, how am I going to say this now without sounding dreary? I was writing out the little schedule for what I want to have in my party when we have my home going service. I'm calling it a party. And I'm going to make a stipulation that if anybody says anything about me, they must begin with saying, I thank God. If you can't thank God for it, please don't say it. This is an important thing for us to understand. And it causes us to appreciate one another more as well. So when you go to pray for someone, think about that person. What can I thank God for that person as far as his life and ministry is concerned. So he tells us when he prays for them, always, whenever he prays for them, he always gives thanks to God for them. Then he tells us when he began praying for them, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So he tells us then why he prays for them. He began praying for them at the moment he heard that they were believers, faith in Christ. By the way, this tells us that the only way we can be placed in Christ is by placing faith alone in Christ alone. He said, when I heard about your faith in Christ, he didn't say when I heard about your profession in Christ, he didn't say I heard about, about your baptism in Christ, he said when I heard about your faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone is the basis for our salvation of being placed in Christ. He gives a reason and he says, and the love which you have for all the saints. So this is why Paul gives thanks for these believers. Because the moment he thinks about them, he remembers their love. Now remember, as we'll see in a moment, Paul himself never really visited Colossae. Paul was not the founder of the church at Colossae. We'll see in a minute that it was Epaphras who was the founder of the church. But he heard about their love. See, in other words, their testimony, their love for one another was so pronounced, was so evident that it was being proclaimed outside of their own territory. It's something of the church of Thessalonians. They were, they were praised for the same thing. Love. And remember again, as two years I've been saying that there's one thing we want to be known for as Calvary Bible Church. First of all, what? Love for God. And then what? Love for one another. I heard a statement some, some time ago, a few days ago by someone here, saying that Calvary does not have love. It says the people at Calvary do not show love for one another. I'm just wondering if he's coming to this Calvary Bible Church. Or they don't, he doesn't know about what the, his own people are doing. Because people are demonstrating love towards one another at Calvary Bible Church on an ongoing basis. Ask the Men's Bible Fellowship, 
who for the past 10, 15 years, every Saturday would be out there repairing the homes of widows or older folk who cannot do it themselves without cost. And they would get the goods for doing this from other folk who would not charge for the, for the products that we're getting. That's love. That these men would give up their time on Saturday to do that. Ask the ladies who are always caring for those who are ill, who all notes of encouragement, providing food when the mother is sick or something like that on an ongoing basis. And we can go on and on and go on. Ask Pastor Aubrey and Pastor, uh, no, Pastor Arnett and myself as we handle the, what we call the benevolent fund. The people who come in because they need money for rent, for light, for hospital, and also, and all kinds of things. And let's go on an ongoing basis. Now, there are other ways now. We have people involved in working with young people in the schools, in the, um, uh, the care kitchen, and all of these other things. That's a demonstration of love. And the only way that a person can say that there's no love in Calvary Bible Church is if they are not involved in that kind of ministry themselves or they don't know the people themselves. And the love that you have for all the saints, that's why I say that love has to be demonstrated now. In fact, Jesus himself says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. So what? If you have love one for another. Then he says also, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. Paul thanks God for these three virtues on a part of these individuals. By the way, as you go through the book, you'll see that they were doing pretty good as far as faith in Christ was concerned. And even as far as love was concerned, they were doing pretty good. But the one area that they were having a problem with was the hope that is laid up for them in, Christ, in heaven. And Paul is going to be talking about this as we go along. I want you to notice, though, Paul gives thanks to God for evidence of their faith, their hope and love, all spiritual virtues. He does not mention any specific ministries that they're doing. I thank God for the fact that you go on the beach and you talk to people every day about Christ. I thank God that you have a bus ministry that reaches kids around here. I thank God that you count how many people raise their hands. and so He doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't even mention about how many people coming to Christ or how many people are being baptized. He only mentions spiritual virtues that have to do with one's character that show that they were Christ-like and that they were growing in Christian maturity. These were the top priorities for the apostle. Not that these other things were not important, but he was putting priorities first. Now this reminds us, of course, of the letters that Jesus himself wrote in the book of Revelation. You remember what he said in Revelation 2? I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance. This is the church at Ephesus, I think. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. See, false doctrine, bad living. They couldn't tolerate they're practicing discipline and everything else. They couldn't tolerate evil. And that's a good thing. You put to the test those who call themselves apostle. That's a doctrinal purity. They are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake. 
You've even suffered for me. And you've not grown weary in doing this. Now those are all good things, aren't they? But notice what he says. But I have this against you. This is to me one of the most terrible things Jesus can say to any believer. I have something against you. And this is what he was saying to this church. I have something against you. I have all of these outward things. But I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. Now he's saying that in because of that, these other things really faded away as far as priorities were concerned. Not that they weren't good, not that they weren't usual, but because there was not that intensity of love, he says, I have that against you. Then in Revelation 3, he writes again, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I say this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, but I wish that you were cold or hot. Now let's get this by the way. He was in saying here that he was in any way condemning them for lukewarmness. He was condemning them because they were not one or the other. If they were cold, he might not have condemned them. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying. The point is this. He's saying here, you are neither cold nor hot. They were not living any convictions at all. You see. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let me back that up. I said he wasn't condemning them for the lukewarmness. He was. But he would prefer them to be either hot or cold rather than being lukewarm. The implication, even if they were cold, he would not have vomited them out of his mouth. But because they were lukewarm, he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, now this is the reason why, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's one of the saddest conditions we can experience. To be in a condition and do not realize the condition that we're in. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might become rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and therefore and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I saw to anoint your eyes so that you may see. As we go to the book of Colossians, you will see that this eye salve is really the word of God being used by the Spirit of God to illuminate us, to cause us to see our true condition before God and to see that we should look at what God values, not what the world values. I believe that one of the greatest hindrances to church, really genuine church growth today, is what has been called the church growth movement. When the emphasis is only on numbers and only caring for what the sinner needs rather than how the Christian is to become a true disciple. I believe that has done more to destroy the true spirituality of the church of Jesus Christ than anything. So what happens today when people want to know how to build the church? They don't go to the Bible. They go to see what these people write. And if you want to know what a 
spiritual churches, the successful churches, don't go to the Bible. See what these church growth people are saying. And that's what's happening. But Jesus says you need the salve to anoint your eyes so that you could see. And we'll see that's the word of God. I notice this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So he's demonstrating here that he loves this church, even though he's being so hard against them. I love you. That's why I'm telling you these things. I, I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. One of the marks of a growing believer, of a Christian who is maturing, is that they are repenting every day. The mark of a growing Christian is repentance. A Christian who is always repenting on a day-by-day basis. Now notice this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That has not been said to unsaved people. That has been said to believers. That has been said to people who are in the church. But we use it only for unbelievers, isn't that right? When last have you used that as a reference to your own life or to the church, to Calvary Bible Church? Jesus standing outside, knocking to come in because his principles are not being observed. Only our principles are being put into practice. Behold, when he says, I stand at the door, that's not the heart's door either, by the way. We put that in. This is what I call eisegesis. You put that in yourself. Nowhere in scriptures are we said that come a Christian, you have to open your heart to receive Christ. Now I know you're going to charge me with heresy, but find a verse. Give me a passage where it tells you anywhere in scripture that you have to open your heart's door to receive Christ. We take this scripture and we misinterpret it when it is being applied to believers, you see. Now, we could use it as an illustration, but he's talking about a church, a local church, whose lifestyle has departed from the teaching of the word of God, departed from love, true love. He says, I want to come into that church. I want to come in to that ministry, and I want you to let me in. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my, thr- on my throne, and I also, as I also overcame and sat down by my father on his throne. Notice what he says now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not what the Spirit says to the unsaved, what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Are you hearing the word of God? We're going to see later that the reason why many people don't understand the word of God is because they do not hear it properly, because they do not have the spirit of God abiding them in the first place. And they do not love the word of God. They cannot take being taught or being instructed under the word. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then Paul describes the source of this spiritual transformation. Paul is going to tell us now how all of these things can be changed. Paul is going to explain how this church came to exhibit faith, hope, and love, which I believe, along with Dr. Gene Getz, is the mark of a spiritually mature church. When faith, 
hope, and love have been demonstrated on a daily basis. Notice what he says, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Notice, which you previously heard. Remember what Jesus says in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear. Notice what he says, of which you previously heard in the word of truth. They heard something that caused their lives to be transformed to become more Christ-like. It isn't what they did. It was they heard and then applied. They heard the gospel which has come to you. Now again, when we see that word gospel, most Christians think about God loves you, you are a sinner, Jesus died for you and rose again, and you have to say the sinner's prayer and become a Christian. That's the gospel. That's not what he's talking about here. The gospel is the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God. To use terminology of the Greek, it is the logos, the whole concept, not just the rima, something that is taken out. But the whole concept, that's the gospel. Notice what he says. The, the gospel is the word of truth. Now in the context here, it means then that it is the source for spiritual transformation that produces faith, hope, and love. The greatest of all virtues. In other words, if the word of God is not proclaimed and heard and accepted and understood properly, we will not be able to manifest faith, hope, and love. Jesus, Jesus himself alludes to this same concept to the keeping and sanctifying power of his word in John 17. Notice what he says, I read from verse 14. <clears throat> this is Jesus' prayer to his father as he prepares to leave earth. He says, I have given them your word, meaning the context of the prayer, his disciples, but by extension, his people, including you and me today. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, in context, the reason for this hatred is the fact that they have the word of God. They have accepted, they have received that word of God. Now notice, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, although many of us would like to be that happen now. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The implication is, the evil one is in the world. But now as we go on, he's going to tell us later that the evil one is even in the church. Notice he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now notice, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart. That's the word sanctify. Set them apart in the truth. What is the truth? Your word. What is the word? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. That's the word. I want you to see the centrality, the priority of the word of God in developing a church to be the kind of church that God wants it to be. One that demonstrates faith, hope, and love. To achieve these things, you have to hear the word preached and taught accurately. We're going to see that in a moment. 
Then Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The implication is I have sent them into the world with your word. That will separate them from the word, but still will demonstrate my presence in their lives. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also be, may be what? Sanctified by the truth. The reason why many Christians are like the world is because they're not sanctified by the truth. They do not know the word of God that will protect them from the attack of the evil one in the world. We need the word of God. That's what he's saying here. Now, again, it's the word of God that makes us Christ-like in a Christless world. Not programs, not activities, but the word of God. Paul emphasizes this point in his next comments. Listen carefully to what he says. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly, that's an intensive word, it is always bearing fruit and increasing. The implication here is that wherever the word of God is truly proclaimed accurately, it always produces fruit, always even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And read those words very carefully. Since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth. Understanding the grace of God as revealed in the word of God. That's what he's saying. Remember we talked at the beginning about Grace, he talks about um, we have to experience the grace of God before we can experience the peace of God. Notice carefully though, it is the word of God that is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It is not programs. It is not concerts. It is not music. It is not any kind. Now programs are great, man. Warner, all of these things are good. Feeding, all those are good. But it's the word that is the source that bears fruit. Constantly bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, it was the word of God that brought about the transforming difference in the lives of the Colossians. Paul does not point to anything that he or they has done to bring them to the point of spiritual maturity in their lives. It was all the word of God. And it started its work from the moment they heard it and notice, understood it. Not only hearing it, but understanding it. Now in the tech context, especially when you bring James in, the understanding has the idea, as we'll see in a moment, of being able to see how the word that we heard or hear can be applied to our daily lives. That takes wisdom and understanding, as we'll see. He explains in the next phrase that Epaphras, one of his associates, was the one who preached the word accurately to them. Notice, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was a faithful teacher of the word of God. Notice now, Paul isn't taking any credit on himself. Paul is giving all the credit to Epaphras, but that's how it looks until it goes on. He says, our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Now, so much here. Let me mention a couple of things. 
He talks about Epaphras, not himself. Paul was an individual who realized that no human being is responsible for bringing maturity to believer. It is only the Spirit of God using the Word of God. He's the one, though, who informed us of your love in the Spirit. Notice that? Love in the Spirit. Now, why doesn't he say faith in the Spirit? Because faith is, the Spirit is involved with it. Why doesn't he say in the hope? Because like the song said that Terence read, love is the greatest of all. Here abides faith, hope, and love. But love is the greatest of all because it outlasts all of them. And it's love in the Spirit. Love in the Spirit. Beloved, listen carefully. We cannot muster up love. Now, we can say, though, that love is obedience to the Word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But in the final analysis, Paul tells us that the love of God is only spread abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who motivates us through his word, the word of God, to care for one another, to love for one another. Love is demonstrated in practical doing. In fact, when you come to the epistle of John, John will tell us that. He says, if you see your brother or sister have a need, they need a bed, they need a blanket, they need a suit, they need some food, and you have that blanket, you have that bed, you have that suit, but you just say, hey, my brother and my sister, I love you, and I'm going to pray for you. Actually, that's hating your brother in the context of James. Because if you can meet that need and don't meet it and send your brother or sister away that need, you're not demonstrating love. You're demonstrating hatred as far as he is concerned. Remember he says, the King James Version says, that when you do not give what you have to meet the need of believer, that you are, how does it, how does it go? Girding up the loins of your bowels. That's what I want, the bowels. How's it go, Pastor? Anybody know that verse? Shutting up your bowels of mercy, right? I call that spiritual constipation. Whenever you have the means of meeting the need of someone and you do not meet that need, you're having spiritual constipation. You need a dose of the Word of God administered by the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying here. But then Paul goes on to explain how their response, the response of the Colossians to the Word of God, motivated him to pray for their coming to know God in a better and fuller way. Because Paul is going to show now, when it all comes down to it, that's the most essential thing, to know God better to have an intimate relationship with him. And he's going to tell us now in these verses that it all revolves around the knowledge of and obedience to the word of God. Notice what he says. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is Paul's prayer now for these believers in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Beloved, this is the key to intimacy with God. Right here in these verses. Let's look at them carefully. Because again I say, this is an amazing passage of scripture. I call it the spiral to Christian maturity or intimacy with God. Let's notice several things. He prays that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Let me ask you a question. Where is that found? The will of God. It's found in the word of God. So what Paul is actually praying for is that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of the word of God. Because that's where God's will is found. Isn't that right? God's will is not found by going into the mountains and and depriving yourself of food just so you can hear something from. No, it's found in the word of God. He says that he wants them to be filled with that knowledge. How? In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now this speaks of dependence upon the spirit of God as we study the word of God so that we understand it in a way that helps us to apply it. In other words, we need illumination concerning the truth of the word as to how it applies to our lives. The spirit of God is the one who provides that. This will result in our walking in a way that is worthy of pleasing God. This will result in a walk that pleases God, in a way of life that pleases God. That, in turn, results in bearing fruit that remains. Fruit bearing is important in the part of a maturing Christian life. Now, that fruit bearing on an ongoing basis results in a deeper knowledge and understanding of God. Then what we do then? We go to the Word. We study it again, and the spiral continues. And the more we study the Word, the more we come to understand it, the more we apply it, the more fruit we bear, the more we come to know of God. And the more we come to know of God, the more intimate relationship we have with, have with Him. Now, let's see. Oh, he has it up already. Notice the spiral. The key is increasing in the knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God causes to become intimate with God. The reason why many of us as believers don't have that intimacy with God is because we don't know the word of God. Because it's the word that reveals God to us. Amen? The word of God that reveals. So, you go to the Bible. That's what God has will to learn that. And then the spirit of God through spiritual wisdom and understanding tells us how we can apply that to our life. It gives us life implications. That causes us to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. That kind of a lifestyle causes us to bear fruit. And then we continue to go to the Bible. And what happens? We continue to increase in the knowledge of God. And what happens? We create, we develop an intimacy with God that causes us to live a life that is always pleasing to him and that will demonstrate faith, hope, and love. These, beloved, are the essential elements of a mature believer. These are the important things. Notice what he says. And this is what will happen as this goes on in your life. You'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Here's the reason of that. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. He takes us right back 
the beginning verses where he gives thanks to God for faith, hope, and life, love in the life of these people. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in inheritance of the saints in life. Again, this is a beautiful passage of scripture. We just don't have the time to develop it this morning. But this describes how a mature and growing Christian lives on a daily basis as a result of this intimacy with God. Notice now the reason and basis for this amazing position. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. You could say from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. Did you get that? Redemption, the forgiveness of sins, rescued from the kingdom of darkness. You know, there's a lot of talk today about the kingdom. And I must say, there's a lot of foolish talk. There's so much foolishness being spoken in the name of God. I don't see how God hasn't just come down and shut us all down. You see? But when you talk about the kingdom of God, you'll find that in most cases, you'll see the kingdom of God is contrasted with the kingdom of darkness. It has to do with the lifestyle as well. Not just that we possess all of this, we possess all of that. No, it's how we are living in this kingdom. It has to do with the rulership of God's sovereignty over our lives that he's going to be talking about in the next verses. He says we're being transferred or trans laid it in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's a kingdom that we should all be in, beloved. And it comes only by faith in Christ. If you've not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ, you are still in the kingdom of darkness. By the way, there's some real thinking here that God cannot do anything in this world unless he has a license from Satan to do it. It'll be illegal for Jesus Christ to do anything in the world because he don't have the right to do it in the world because this world belongs to Jesus. This world belongs to the devil. That's heresy. That's heresy. Jesus Christ does not need permission from the devil to do anything. All right? Nothing at all. Yes, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom, but what kingdom is that? That is the kingdom that excludes God as a sovereignty. In other words, any and everyone who does not own Jesus Christ as king of their lives, they are in the kingdom of Satan. Jesus Christ has nothing to do with that kingdom. That's Satan's kingdom. That's why John tells us, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the, de- the, lust of the pride of life, and so on. That's the kingdom that is ruled over by the devil. Not all the world's kingdoms. But by the way, since I have a little bit more time after I've retired, I'm going to be giving some lectures on the kingdom of God at Teleos on Saturday evenings. I'm calling them Saturday Live. <laughs> Saturday Live Lectures on the Kingdom. And we're going to try to get some balance here to all of the foolishness we hear being taught today. But 
it is faith in Christ that places us in Christ and therefore places us in his kingdom. Then he also says that the appreciation of our salvation in Christ um, is important. In other words, as we come to truly appreciate our salvation and realize what we've been forgiven, forgiven of all our sins, redeemed from all of the judgment that's coming from upon us because of sin, we can appreciate God more as we understand what we have been delivered from. Now, that's a whole message in itself again. You remember the woman who uh, poured the alabaster box of perfume on the feet of Jesus? And remember the apostles and the disciples' reaction? How can you let her use all that expensive stuff? You've thrown it away and so on. Remember what he said at the end of it? He says that those who have been forgiven more can, to put it in the context, worship better or worship more. In other words, there's a greater motivation to worship and to serve God when we really realize what it is we have been saved from. You see, and many people, believe it or not, do not understand what they've been saved from. Why? Because they do not understand the word of God. They've not studied the word of God. Because there's only the word of God who can really scare the hell out of us. You understand what I'm saying? Because it's only the word of God who describes hell for what it is. Hell is not just a place where you can meet all your friends and party all the time. That's what they like to say. Mm-mm. If you want to know what hell is all about, you've got to know the word. And the reason why a lot of people are not scared of hell is because they do not know the word of God. All right? But now, Paul then goes on to a passage that leads into what I believe the most magnificent description of Jesus Christ given anywhere in Scripture. The next verses 15 through 19 or 20 in this first chapter. But we don't have time to look at it this morning. So Lord willing, if I'm here and you're here, we'll go through that. Okay? But in closing, let me first speak to those of you who have not yet received Jesus Christ as Savior. You have not placed your faith in him. If this is so, it means that you have not yet experienced either the grace of God or peace with God. And so I invite you, I even appeal to you. If you believe that God has spoken to you through this message, if God has, is speaking to you right now, and that's the only reason why you should respond, if you sense God speaking to you, not me speaking to you, but if you sense God the Spirit is speaking to you, then just where you are, you can place faith in Christ and begin on your life to develop hope and love as well. So I appeal to you, if the Spirit of God is working in your life right now, you place faith in Jesus Christ. For those of you who are believers, do you have a clear and consistent plan for praying for others as well as for studying the Word of God? Do you study the Word of God? Or do you just base the way you live on what you hear me say, some other pastors say, or what you hear on TV? If that's all it is that you base your lifestyle upon, you're on shaky ground. You have got to go to the word of God yourself. And like the Bereans, examine what I say. Examine what you hear on TV, what you see on TV. Examine it before the word of God. If you need some help in studying the word, ask one of the pastors. Because if there's anybody who should know how to study the word, it's us as pastors. Anyway, isn't that right? So if you need help, 
ask one of the pastors. Or ask another mature believer that you might know can help you. Now, some time ago, when we asked this, we provided a time of study, how to study the Bible. Do you remember that? How many of you went to the class on how to study the Bible? See that? Only a few. It was offered mine for weeks. We went through the plan of how to study the Bible. And only a handful of people showed up. Although studying the Bible is probably the most important thing a believer can do, it is yet the least important, the less important time believers place in anything in their Christian life, in knowing how to study the Bible. They go, they live their life on films, you know, films you hear from here, films you hear from there, a little pick me up here, a little motivational thing you hear, and you live your life on that rather than going and getting the real stuff from the Word of God. So I appeal to you as believers, Jesus is knocking right now. He wants entrance into your life so that He can reveal Himself to you through His Word. Will you open the Word and let Him in? That's my challenge to you today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit who illuminates us, who causes us to understand the word, then empowers us to obey it. May we as a church, Father, come to truly demonstrate faith, hope, and love in our lives. And all of God's people said, Amen.